Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the technology sector, what's gone well and what's not, and where we should look for the next big thing. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Ben Rogoff, Fund Manager at Polar Capital, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Please note that any stocks or company names mentioned in this podcast are used for illustrative purposes only and should not be considered in any way as investment advice. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. We're very pleased this week to be able to welcome back Ben Rogoff from Polar Capital. He and his team specialise in investing in technology stocks, a fairly broad remit nowadays, of course. However, after the year and the decade this broadly defined sector has had, this is a particularly good moment to be able to call on Ben's expertise. We also have Will, who as usual will try and cover the week in a bit more detail. So Will, let's start off with you. What has been the story of the week so far? Hello, Sarah. Hello, Ben. Uh, thank you again, Ben, a stalwart star contributor to this uh, podcast. And I'm sure lots of others. So no, thank you again for, for, for coming on echoing Sarah's words. But the, the, it, there's probably no single story. But I mean, the main story, I think, is really centering around the inflation story, of course. And the, primarily, there's two you know, big questions, which are, you know, have we seen the peak in inflationary pressures in the US? Was that the high watermark that we've seen in the months past? That's the first question. The second question is if we have, um, and there's still some question marks about that, if we are finally though moving beyond the peak, how quickly or not will inflation come back uh, all the way to those kind of 2%-ish targets? Now, the answer to the first question will go a long way to deciding the peak in US, uh, you know, therefore global monetary policy. You could also argue that this peak in peak inflation story will decide whether investors are sufficiently on top of the scale of the incoming kind of economic punishment that will result that's sort of still in the pike from those interests. You know, that sharp, the sharp interest rate rises we've been talking about. The higher short rates go, let's assume for a second that there are more unflavorable inflation readings ahead, uh, you know, the higher the likelihood of a more significant recession next year. Uh, and the reverse is also true. So as you know, in our, in our short-term tactical portfolio, the guys are broadly positioned for a worsening in the short-term global economic backdrop beyond that which is already reflected in stock and bond markets. So we do think actually that there's still a bit of an adjustment to go, uh, that markets seem to be still to us potentially exaggerating the kind of benign path ahead where the US and global economy broadly avoid recession. The Chinese economy also continues to be pretty precariously placed. That's, again, been a regular theme for this year, uh, you know, and, and a little bit. They have a totally different set of problems, of course. You know, there is the wobbly property, property markets in common, and you are seeing that in the US and the UK and elsewhere. Uh, sorry, elsewhere. But the scale of the property market bubble that the Chinese authorities are deliberately trying to deflate, it's staggering. I think what was it? Adam Tooze had that statistic that in the 2010s, in three years, China China poured more concrete into the ground than the US managed in the entire 20th century. So, you know, the scale of what we're dealing with here is kind of something quite different. But also, as we know, they're battling zero, the zero COVID and, and this latest most transmissible strain of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, and that's at the moment people are currently sort of plausibly forecasting the second quarter next year for, for we see sort of a sustained reopening of the Chinese economy. So there's still some way to go there. Uh, and remember, they're dealing with a totally different context. So, you know, rather than a shortage of workers there, in a sense, you know, China's problem is one of sort of seems to be one of incentives. You know, you've got almost 20% youth unemployment in China. So it's a really different set of problems, but it's 
yes, it would be making the headlines much more if it wasn't if there wasn't so much going on in the uh, in the rest of the world. I think. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on, isn't there? Well, and I think what we'll do is over the next couple of podcasts, we'll look at more detail on what the next year will bring or what we can understand about what next year will bring. But for this week, I obviously want to zero in on the technology sector. So, Ben, coming over to you, it's obviously been a chastening year for some of the best known technology stocks. What are the common factors that we need to be aware of in amongst all this? Or are we looking at lots of idiosyncratic problems which add up to sector trouble? Uh, well, good question. And uh, thanks very much for having me back. Well, look, there's lots of things going on, on, on there. And, um, you know, there's the stuff that Will has already referenced, the you know inflation, high rates, lots of policymaker support. And obviously tech had been in um, really the go-to sector for a good part of a decade. And you could argue the, the pandemic was... I guess the crowning glory of a technology cycle that uh, we're now sort of in the, having to deal with the, the aftermath of. But those sort of market uh, factors have obviously played a big part. The value, you know, the, the, the growth of value rotation really being one of the most obvious manifestations of that. But as, as you sort of you know, look into the largest tech names themselves, the so-called FANGs and, and others, you know, I guess what do they have in common? They have in common that these are great businesses, you know, natural monopolies, well-owned category winners, with the way we describe them. And many of them have been in, of course, the ESG flow slipstream as well, which I think may have benefited them last year too. And a few of them, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, and maybe a few others have benefited from some pull forward uh, related to the pandemic. So there are others, of course, other, you know, common factors is the, the market, the the economy is weaker that's obviously played a part in things like weaker advertising trends and i think apple has also sort of flexed its muscles a bit changing its idfa the identifier for advertisers which has been really tricky for meta for snap less so for google obviously which you know for advertising businesses and then more recently some of the companies have also found it a bit trickier in the cloud cloud growth slightly weaker as some of their customers are optimizing their cloud spend so there are some common threads and then there's the idiosyncratic there's the meta you know moving to the metaverse you've had tiktok causing a bit of uh, havoc in there as well and, and google more recently i think upsetting the street um, by going out and hiring twelve thousand people in 90 days when they sort of intimated they, they weren't going to do that so it's a mix overall i would say that what's that more it's common factors with the odd exception like meta where i think that stock has sort of fallen from the um, you know, the right side of history, um, looking more like it's a sort of legacy incumbent. and We've meaningfully reduced our position in that one. Oh, that's interesting. And I guess if there's any budding tech investors out there, I'd be interested to learn more about how you tackle this massive sector. And does your research process change when a particular holding is going against you? Uh, well, I think, you know, doing this a long time and I, you know, I look at uh, attribution, Nick and I, we, you know, every year, you know, you're in a way surprised by some some of the things that feature in, in positive and negative attribution. But one of the things that we've always been pretty good at, or certainly in the last 10 years, I would say, is that, you know, we, we're very careful not to throw good money after bad. And I think the kind of one of the advantages to uh, institutional investing is that the ability to step back and say, you know, was that was that a good decision? Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, and, and if you like something at 100, it doesn't mean that you should like it more at 80. So we go back and we re-examine our assumptions and we think about the market. And, you know, right now, for example, the market backdrop is more challenging. And, you know, there are lots of things to worry about. We're worrying about what the growth trajectory of a software company is. Uh, you know, is it 20? Is it 30? We'll have a profoundly different impact on its value. Uh, I don't really want to be worrying about things like debt. I don't really want to worry about financing risk. And so, you know, we, we don't like companies anyway with weak balance sheets but are particularly keen to avoid them 
right now. A couple of other things I might highlight, um, which may be of interest. We obviously, between us, there's eight of us in, in London, we um, we listen to conference calls and you know, attend company meetings all the time, of course, hundreds every year. But we're trying now to actually listen to management teams, not just reading earnings transcripts. I think you get a bit more colour from, from listening and, 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 and hearing what people have to say. Uh, and, and yeah, I think you just, you know, you try to think about not the positions that you own, but the opportunity set. And, and you know, what we've done in the portfolio really since the pandemic peak was, you know, we brought down our weightings of some of those work from home beneficiaries, you know, things like Peloton that we were buying in the 20s and 30s and sold in the 90s and that stock's now nine. So I think the research process is built to ensure that you don't throw good money after bad and that you maintain pretty strong sell disciplines. And, you know, we have consistently added value by reducing and exiting losing positions. Yeah, Ben, that's, that's helpful. Maybe thinking a bit more about the, your research process, but I want to understand how what happens when you are persistently surprised in the positive? Does that change the way that you think about a particular stock if it's always doing better than you expected? Oh, it's like uh, it's like you're asking me to you know to go back at least eighteen months there when we were persistently <laughs> positively surprised. Oh, I, I mean, I shouldn't make light of it. It's obviously a more difficult market right now, and you know we've we've obviously had stocks that have performed well and delivered good numbers, but persistent surprise. I think what we're talking about here is you know the the do we flex the process to ensure that we run our winners? Do we yeah. have hard and fast price targets on assets? And I think. You know, I, I was in my own career quite struck early uh, in it by a colleague who remained nameless, who who had designed or devised this um, incredibly infallible spreadsheet where she could calculate the value of any stock. Um, and and I thought this was quite amusing, uh, even even <laughs> twenty years ago. But still, I think I learned a lot from that moment. And the exchange, the somewhat incredulous exchange that somehow you had the spreadsheet that could uh, answer all things and you know i think when you when, when, as an investor we, we try to you know lay out what we believe is a sort of bull bear and base case on every stock that we own and obviously you know candidates that might find their way into the portfolio and you know i think that those you know there, there, there obviously are some actual levels and on each of those stocks there's a number that we put on a bull case and a base case and a bear case but you know if markets change of course if the cost of capital changes if some of the assumptions we've made might look aggressive or, or conservative we will flex them so i think actually having just said to you earlier that we're pretty good at selling losing positions and reducing them one of the things that looks always less positive when i look at attribution reports is actually that we have typically ended up selling stocks a bit early you know we, we tend to sort of feather out our sales so, so that we can participate more fully in, in, in a stock move and and so on an attribution report that looks like a negative it says that you're selling things you're not fully realizing the value of a good idea but from our perspective we're happy with that because i think that once you start to exceed what you had hoped for for a stock all things being equal it feels entirely right from a risk perspective to be to be looking to, to reduce or and or exit so yes i think in a prolonged bull market where we're persistently surprised we tend to give away basis points a bit early and I guess moving on to think a bit more strategically, there seems to be a lot going on at the moment, full stop. However, there are also some big developments in the technology frontier. In this context, have you changed any of your expectations with regard to the areas where you see, where you can envision winning particularly big in the years ahead? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. We work in markets and so we have, a, we have to deal with the things that drive markets and obviously, uh, that's our jobs. I just came back uh, not long ago from an IT conference where people are not worrying about markets per se. They're worrying about IT budgets, of course. But really, they're trying to work out how best to allocate those budgets, how best to navigate 
some of the positives and negatives around tech right now, what to do with AI. You know, real concerns, you know, technology enabling change in real industries, you know, Sanofi or whatever it might be, real world companies trying to work out what the best thing to do with their IT budgets. And I think it's just a good reminder that the trends within technology, they, they, they tend to persist around, you know, despite the sort of ups and downs of market narrative. And so if you're excited about payments, and you probably should stay excited about payments. And if you really are uh, a believer like I am, that AI and AI sort of um, in sort of driven decision making will become, you know, table stakes, then why would you allow the market to, to interrupt that? But the reality is, is that in the end, uh, we are we are market participants. And so what we tend to do and what we've done this time is, you know, you make tweaks to your um, to your exposure. So for example, we've de-emphasized advertising. It's a pretty straightforward reaction to a weaker macro environment. We So, so that would be one core theme that we've, we're doing less with. But we've added to alternative energy, where we've always had a sort of peripheral exposure to that space. And obviously, post events in Ukraine and energy prices and the need for energy security. So the allure of companies like, I don't know, Solar Edge or Enphase versus Solar have, have gone up. So we'll make tweaks to our, our investment themes, but rather than change the expectations. But the one thing I would add quickly is to say that in a more testing market environment where there is more work being done on, you know, well, just about every assumption that you can make, you just have to be a little bit more discerning about those really long duration investments. You know, binary investments that have never really appealed to us become that, you know, even less appealing. And and timelines for adoption in things like metaverse or autonomous vehicles tend to be pushed back. You know, there's much less experimentation and budgets during, more, you know, more challenging environments. And so we make those adjustments in the portfolio too. And I remember last time you were talking about AI, and it's good to kind of hear that consistency. But I want to dig in on how do you decide which bits of that technology frontier to get most or least excited about? And how do you make sure you're keeping it fresh or changing your view and, you know, consistent with you and your team's evolving thoughts? Well, I, I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, thankfully, we're blessed with a large and experienced team that you know, does lots of meetings and attends trade shows and reads stuff. And every day, you know, we have a channel in, in the group, one of our team's channels, which is just interesting charts. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? We just have a channel just for interesting charts. Nothing to do with stocks that we're buying or interested in, but just stuff happening in the world that might be of interest. I think yesterday was the first day that container ships are off the Californian coast. There weren't any uh, queuing. You know, some of the supply chain challenges there seem to be being resolved. So what we what you do is read widely, do the bog standard work on, you know, meetings and analysts and what have you, trade shows and other events, uh, and then try and think more broadly. And so, yes, go to the Gartner Symposium and talk to IT buyers uh, and just make sure that your assumptions aren't wildly wrong. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's the key here. Um, you know, we, don't, we try to remain pragmatic. And so, you know, again, it, it, for us, the, the sanity check on all of this stuff is that we typically don't invest in themes that don't exist. You know, we're not <laughs> early stage investors. We don't invest in, in in ideas. People may have done that in the 90s. We, we, we won't be doing that today. And so we're not sitting there and worrying about some new battery technology that no one's really invented yet. We just don't get involved there. And so what, what you try to do is ensure that the themes that you're most excited about are ones where the penetration, the market adoption is still in that kind of sweet spot. So that for us is between five and 30% roughly. It's a rule of, rule of thumb. And of course, in that sweet spot, 
macroeconomic headwinds like the ones we're feeling right now are somewhat diminished because there's just this force, this secular trend behind you. And, and, and of course, once you leave that 30% or 40%, let's say, that you become very much more um, at the whim of, of, of macro environment. That's why you see advertising weakness showing up at Google and other places, Meta, and because penetration in advertising is more than 50% right now globally. So I think it's really making sure that, you, that you're sure that your themes aren't fully penetrated. Cloud is a very interesting one right now because most people believe that cloud penetration is in the 20s. So 20% of all workloads, compute workloads and storage workloads in the cloud. But very recently at Amazon and at Alphabet, uh, no, excuse me, Microsoft, um, there's been a slight weakness at the margin, not quite growing at the, at the pace that they, they were previously. And so we then make sure we try to do as much work as we can to get comfort with what is happening at AWS and Azure, so that we are, so we're really going back and making sure that our penetration assumptions are not not wrong. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Ben. And I want to take advantage of all that reading and conferences and chatting and looking at charts that you've been doing. Can you tell us, tell our listeners, what areas of tech are you most excited about at the moment? And happy for to have a couple. How many hours have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm joking. Look, I, I think we did AI last time, but I mean, if anybody answered that question and didn't say AI, then I don't know. Uh, they must they must be uh, more interesting investors than us. We we are you know struck by just how early we are in the AI story. And I think you know three or four years ago when we launched uh, an AI sort of specific product, we were very hair shirt about the process. It made it clear that you know it was very early, and we knew that much of the stuff happening was kind of experimental. And you know we're now solving for chess and, and Go and other games and all of that stuff. And, and now you look across the piece. Now four years later, and you know companies like. I think we, we, we talked to UPS recently, how they used AI in order to move around their aircraft just before China lockdown. Uh, that was a use case we'd never heard before. We were talking this morning about how sensors can be used in horse racing in order to get real-time data on the performance of the horse and therefore provide in-race in uh, analytics and, and live pricing. Uh, that's that's interesting, and, and and other things. You know, how does Cartier move high value pieces of jewellery around to make sure that they're in the right place for those windows where people buy high end jewellery? And it's all this stuff is all being driven by AI and data. And so, when you think about those examples, that there's a really good reminder that AI is no longer experimental; that it's being used in supply chain management. In some of those examples I just gave right now, and so we, we we're really at the very beginning of this. I think we'll look back and say. Crumbs. Do you remember when we used to make decisions based on gut feel and, <laughs> and other stuff? And I, I, I don't know. So AI for me is the, is the number one focus point. If we can find ways to get exposure to AI that others haven't worked out, then we, we will absolutely do that. Uh, the second thing that I would call out is um, what are we doing now? I'm most excited about really is a function of the valuation compression we've seen. So, you know, go back a year at uh, the highs of software. And I think there were something like 25 companies trading with forward EV sales multiples above 20. And today there are none. So there's been a massive, a massive compression in next generation valuations as a result of some of the stuff we've talked about, but also some of the excess is being drawn out of the market. So we are absolutely going through that space with a fine tooth comb, looking for companies, good businesses, well capitalized software stocks that have large market opportunities, 20 to 30% sort of minimum growth rates. And we're finding some really interesting names. I'm not going to share with you that we share them with you today because no, we might still be buying a few of them. But uh, I would also just quickly add one of the other areas that I think is super interesting that we avoided 
quite well, actually, if I may say, um, was fintech and payments. Not not payments. We've owned Visa Master. We had, unfortunately, a bit of PayPal on the way down, but we obviously had a lot of it on the way up. But I think the payment space has been really hard hit as a result of you know, long duration investing going out of favor, but also, you know, e-commerce trends being quite weak. And we've gone back there and, you know, made some purchases that we had stepped out of or never held something like Square or Block, as it's known. We got involved there and we have a position in today. Bill.com, which is a sort of software business that helps companies automate um, AR and, and AP, account receivables, account payables. So, so look, I think the point is that, again, these are software businesses, but they sit within that payment story. And the reason that we're excited still about payments is that the penetration rates on, on payments across various categories are still very, very low. Okay, nice. And thank you for limiting it to three, but we do hope to have you back and hear some more areas that you're excited about. Will, any final comments from you? Listen to Ben, I think. Probably the final comment from me. I don't want to ruin anything. That was a wonderful podcast. I so enjoyed listening to it, uh, uh, that you and Ben talking. But I mean, I think the one thing that I would take away from it, just from, you know, people who, you know, pick stocks part-time which is fine you know we want to you know it's possible to have fun investing as well we don't want to be total buzzkills about it but what we would say is that the core of your investments the reason why we say that you should have our managed multi-asset not necessarily ours you could have anyone's multi-asset class global funds uh you know humming away in the background with your savings part of that is you know, listen to Ben and, you know, he was talking about listening to hundreds of management calls every year, listening to them, not just reading them and think logically, just that aspect. Could you logically replace that as, you know, what a specialist like Ben and his team can bring to bear on the market? Uh, and that's part of, like I say, why, you know, our model of sort of, you know, investing these multi-asset class funds and portfolios, we're very lucky to, you know, represent all our many colleagues involved in this, you know, we're strong believers in specialism. We believe that although heptathletes are wonderful athletes to watch, that in every discipline, you're going to find someone who can run faster, jump higher, further, so on. And what we're trying to do is get individual specialisms and put them together. So we have, you know, tactical asset allocation specialists. We have people devoted to finding funds like Ben's to populate our portfolios with. And that is really why, uh, you know, specialism is key because you've really got to think, can you replicate what Ben brings to his, uh, you know, Ben and his team bring to the, bring to the market? But that's just, yeah, the final point from me. Oh, well said, Will. And um, thank you, Will. And thank you, Ben, for joining us today. And thanks, everyone, for listening again. Look forward to catching up again next week. Investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.